0: This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised.
1: You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry podcast.
0: What stories have you got going through your mind then? Anything you could give away?
1: Um, I'm working on a on a book just now, and about forced adoption. Actually, it's a, a ghostwriting project, and um, and then I'm also working on a a book proposal for somebody, and I still do bits and pieces of journalism here and there as well, and I've got some private like people that I work with to help them write manuscripts that they that they want to self publish or whatever. So yeah, just bits and pieces, <laughs> and then of course. Um, the real life murder club. So every time I, I always get a bit nervous when it comes to talking about it because there's so many stories in there and I have to reread it or and try to. I've got a, I'm surrounded by cards here. So do bear with me if I have to dip into my notes. It's
0: okay. It's okay. You can dip in. I don't expect you to have a photogenic memory. Is that the right word? Maybe that's not yeah. the right word.
1: Yeah. <laughs> a good
0: memory. My memory's shocking. So you mentioned journalism there. That's how you got in there. I want to call it a game, but that's how you got into the reporting on true crime kind of thing. How did that come about?
1: Yeah, so it's a yeah, it's a bit of a long story, really. I, my first degree I did was in fine art, so I started out thinking I was going to be an artist, but of course that didn't happen when the reality <laughs> sunk in after leaving art <laughs> college that you actually need to have loads of money behind you in the studio and be exhibiting and everything. So um I did various jobs and I ended up working in a casino as a croupier As a what? a croupier and stealing the roulette tables and stuff i'm not
0: familiar sorry
1: (laughs) i absolutely hated but it was funny through that job that i ended up in journalism because um i'd come out after the night shifts and get the newspapers you know hot off the stand in the morning about six in the morning and go home and devour these newspapers and started writing about the characters I met in the casino the the punters that came in so I always liked writing and then so I went to do a MA in journalism at Sheffield University and it was just a year and then I ended up in the highlands of Scotland on a little local newspaper called the Strasby and Badenock Herald right yeah near Aviemore and then I sort of ventured onto daily newspapers and to the tabloids and ended up at the News of the World where um Unfortunately, that went down after me being there for six years. So, um, but my, I, I sort of centred on crime writing. That was I was making a crime reporter.
0: How did you end up in the Highlands? That seems a bit of a. Was it Sheffield you said originally?
1: Well, I always tell people I fell asleep on a train, but um, it wasn't quite like that. I think I, I, I didn't want to. Whereas some of my fellow students were sort of aiming high and wanting to go to PA or go to the big agencies. Um, I felt more comfortable starting with local, local news, and I just wanted to I wanted to change. Really, I'd always lived in a city, uh, London, for many years, and and I just fancied something a bit different. And it was very remote. Yeah, the the attitude from some of the locals wasn't wasn't that nice at first because it was English. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, no, yeah, it was good fun. Um, lots of quirky stories.
0: What sort of stuff are you reporting on up there? Because I can't imagine crime is heavy on the agenda in such uh, a local community.
1: Yeah, it was a lot of local community council meetings. Um, gosh, it was so long ago. This We're going back to like, 2000 here, so um, <laughs> bear with me. Yeah, more, more local stories. Um, but there was a lot of death, actually, with the roads up there. There was lots of car accidents. I remember one poor family, I think two daughter survived but their parents were killed and it was really sad so yeah a lot of that that went on a lot of um hill walking accidents and people getting lost in the hills and mountain searches
0: is that just a case of people being unprepared so I would have thought locals and stuff might have known the terrain was it tourists that often went missing
1: yeah often people that um you know come up to visit yeah, but maybe not, yeah, not prepared, not wearing the right clothing or...
0: Like the outback in Australia, the
1: highlands yeah. of Scotland.
0: <laughs> <laughs> in the forests and the wild lands, beyond the wall, I call it. <laughs> beyond the wall. So when you moved to the news of the world then, that's when you probably started reporting on more national crimes, I guess. Do you remember some of the major ones you were reporting on?
1: Yeah, well, my biggest um, case, one that I'm uh, still obsessed with today, is Peter Tobin, the serial killer. Mm-hmm. so I worked with um she did the two uh Vicky Hamilton's parents a uh, father stepmom um we did the the big exclusives with them so I spent a lot of time with the, fa- the relatives of the victims and also Diana McNichol um her dad was very close to him sadly passed away a few years ago so I used to speak to him on the phone I used to ring at two three four in the morning <laughs> um yeah, really, like, completely ruined his life, really, what happened there. But, um, that, that was in the, the story. Like, I mean, it, it, as you know, Peter Tobin died in October last year. Mm-hmm. So, again, I was talking with Diana's brother, actually, I've remained friends with him, and yeah, various small stories, but he definitely, definitely killed a lot more. It's whether they ever find any more bodies that remains to be seen. Do
0: you think he was Bible John?
1: I don't think so, no. No. I think um, people do, don't they? Yeah, some do. I know that um, David Swindle, the, the the one who set up um, Operation Anagram, he maintains it wasn't Bible John. I think, like, because it was not very much a a phrase that was coined, wasn't it, through the police and media after what was said in the car that night. I can't remember, but I think Bible one of the, one of the girls. So yeah, no, I don't think so. But I mean, I must admit, some of his crimes do. Some of the circumstances sound very Tobin-esque.
0: Did you speak to Tobin himself, or was it just relatives of
1: you know? I tried. <laughs> um, <Try. laughs> got, got into a little bit of trouble with that one actually because I was. Um, I used to write part of my work. I used to write to killers in jail, and I usually posing as a pen pal.
0: <laughs> right. Okay.
1: I used to do quite a lot. I think I actually wrote once, pretending to be a fifteen-year-old girl, and and Tobin actually. Um, I had a PO box in London and it was, um, yeah, so I, was, I tried various methods to get to him basically. And this was common. I mean, it probably doesn't happen now, but back then, you know, I did try various tricks like that, but my letter ended up in the hands of the then Strathclyde police force. <laughs> 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 because Tobin had actually, um, uh, they, And this, I think is the closest we'll ever come to a, maybe a admission of guilt from him. Cause he, he Handed in the letter saying he was concerned that a 15 year old would be writing to someone like him. So I don't know, it just made me think because, you know, because he never would admit, would he, his, his um, no. crimes.
0: Yeah, it's curious that that's the one that got his attention, thinking mm-hmm. it was a 15 year old girl. Did you have any success with other killers you'd wrote to?
1: Yep. There's uh, one called Sean Alexander. Mm-hmm. He's known as the Hot Tub Killer. Okay. He, um, He killed his – bear with me because, again, I don't have it in front of me. (laughs) (laughs) He killed his ex-girlfriend, Nicola Johnson, and a a new lover in a hot tub. He was a former soldier. Yeah, that was horrific. So I wrote to him. I spoke to him as well, actually. I had another mobile phone. I'd speak to him on and record his phone calls. And it was incredible because he was like – he was saying how much he missed his wife, and the first thing he's going to do when he gets out of jail is to go – to her grave and lay flowers and he had a tattoo of her name done while he was in prison yeah it's it's weird <laughs> how their minds operate isn't it
0: how difficult is it to access prisoners especially in the UK because I spoke to Christopher Berry Dee who spoke to a lot of American serial killers and it sounds like over there it's far easier to get access face to face I don't know if it's a right or something how difficult is it in the UK
1: well this was this was Scotland I've not tried it in England. I think it's probably more tricky down here maybe I don't know but I mean yeah I was writing a lot as a pen pal and so you know you, you just wait and see if they respond to that and then they, they all had mobile phones you know this is going back maybe at like 2008 2009 so you'd end up speaking to them on the phone as well but yeah no, it was relatively I mean I know mean, there was a couple that I used to visit as a journalist so they'd give me get me visitor passes and I'd go and chat to them and End up with storage. You couldn't take a notebook in or anything like that though. So it's um you know, you have to go through all the security. I remember going up to the you know, the former Peterhead prison. That was to visit a sex offender actually. <laughs> and that was an interesting visit because I'd go like every other Friday. But once when I went, I ended up um chatting to this lovely elderly couple that had come over from Northern Ireland and they'd gone to see their son. And we went into the visiting room this guy who they were visiting like looked up and waved at me. And then the mum brought over a bag of crisps and a can of Coke. And she said, it's, it's from my boy. So I'm thinking, I recognize that face. And then the guy that I was visiting said, oh, that's the limbs in the lock killer. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, William Beggs. Uh, so that was, yeah, <laughs> that was interesting. But the, And the parents, they were like, you know, we're going to keep fighting, he's innocent, you know. Yeah, they're really sweet. But, yeah, so it's bizarre the situations you ended up in When I think of it now, it's like, I think I must have been a bit crazy, really. But
0: (laughs) It must be strange saying it out loud and and thinking, actually, this sounds a little bit abnormal.
1: Yeah, I don't know (laughs) how safe it was, really.
0: (laughs) What's it like when your phone rings and say you've saved the number somehow and it's, you know, Mr. Killer? That must be anxiety-inducing, I would have thought.
1: Yeah, but back then, I think it was like a little pay-as-you-go phone, you know, that it just came up. The mobile number, I just recognized the mobile number where the, they were ringing from, but I knew that it was them because it was just on that phone if that makes sense I didn't yeah. get my private number,
0: okay, right, okay, so that so both of you had a bit yeah, release.
1: but you do feel it does make you especially when like a, a lot of them these male prisoners they they're cooped up, they start going down the line of wanting phone sets and all that which oh, I just, just, you have to steer them away from that, but still try to keep up the pretence you know like so it's yeah it's it's not nice, it's not. Not something I'd like to do now, put it that way.
0: <laughs> did they ever try and sort of pick for information about your life and, you know, maybe where you lived or to try and give away some personal information about yourself?
1: Yeah, but I only um not when I went as a journalist, but when I wrote to people as a pen pal, obviously they did, but then I I had to keep a folder of the character who I was. Right, <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay. Like a method actor.
1: Yeah, completely different to, to who I was. I'd usually try and keep it quite simple and, and say that I was into like you know, soap operas and shopping and girly stuff.
0: Right, okay. Yeah. Sort of stereotypical.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm with you, I'm with you. So I think when I was sort of looking up your profile, I know you've got a website, right? First, actually what I want to ask you, which I haven't asked you yet, is how do you pronounce your surname? Stow. Stow. okay. So I had, <laughs> st- had Stowe in my head. I have this habit of, Saying people's names without asking them, and then just making a fool of myself. So it's Stowe. That's good to know. Stow, good to know. I don't
1: mind though. I'm not. I'm not precious about it. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I've got a different married name. That's it's actually my maiden name, Stow. But I've always okay. kept it for writing, so I'll keep it for my writing work.
0: One thing I like to ask people that do ghostwritten work mm-hmm. is, how does it feel knowing that you've written a book, but your name isn't attached to the finished work?
1: Yeah, I get that a lot, actually. Um, I personally don't mind. Um, a lot of the time, authors will acknowledge you in their acknowledgements. Um, a couple of books I've done, no, three books I've done I've had uh, with Nicola Stowe on, on the cover. Yeah, it's always nice when they do that. But, um, but otherwise, no, I mean, essentially it's the author's story. You know, one doesn't work without the other. And I quite like being in the background. Like what I was saying to you before that, you know, being the interviewee, it makes me really nervous because <laughs> I used to the other side. So, yeah, you know, I always think, yeah, I'll find it hard to listen back to interviews I've done. But, um, yeah, so I'm quite happy when it comes to that, you know, especially the promotion side of the book, you know, I think, thank God that's not me having to go on. All right. <laughs> you know? so, so I think it quite suits me. And I, I like what I was saying about the right to prisoners. And I like the, I like the, the process of it, of, like becoming that person, taking on their voice, and you do start to think and talk like them. Like I, I did a book with um, a guy called Terrell Lewis, who was a former Brixton gang leader. All I kept saying every day was "in it" and took on all this.
0: it <laughs> oh, took on rid- his mannerisms.
1: I couldn't get rid of it. Yeah,
0: yeah. I spoke to. I don't think well, it might have actually aired by the time this comes out. When I spoke to Matt Calvler, who was book oh, yeah, you first yeah. wrote. Uh huh. That was an interesting chat with Matt. So Matt, let's say I'm Matt in that situation.
1: Mm-hmm. A former
0: copper and a book publisher says, right, we want to publish your memoir. You're going to work with Nicola. What is the process like? So what is day one? What are you expecting from me as the person telling you my story?
1: Yeah, so we start with interviews and the, the interviews, are they're intensive, you know, there's hours upon hours of interviews. Um, and I guess like... What, I like it if um, I don't have to steer that person too much, you know. So, like, the more colourful they are with their language or more, like, um, descriptions are really good when people come up with really good, like, original descriptions of people or places and atmospheres. And, you know, because it's all about scene building as well when you're writing. So, as yeah, as much sort of information. and But also, equally, I have to sometimes think to myself, wait a minute, you're asking them to remember something from, like, 20 30 years ago yeah you know, asked me to remember one day what the room smelt like what i was wearing you know i probably wouldn't remember that far back so you're you know i realized that you're making them it's a big ask for them to remember many facts and stories and details also looking for like you know it's important that you get along with that person obviously um, yeah so you're trying to build a good like trusting relationship between the two of you
0: How much license do you have for embellishment when it comes to things such as the scent of a room or, you know, the vivid description of a place that they might not fully remember? Is there any kind of give as far as your creative freedom?
1: Yeah, and I mean, I always run everything I write is given back to the author and they can take stuff out if they want or, you know, I just say, look, you know, I've added a bit of detail here just to create a bit of atmosphere. I mean, I don't think anyone's going to sue over me creating a smell in a room or something like that but you know or <laughs> over like something someone was wearing one of the big things is changing names obviously of people that not aware that the book's being written or have not given their consent to to be in the book so we'd change names and sometimes it's like an advantage to to do make those changes to protect people you know so um so to disguise sometimes scenes if it's an issue of someone being identified Right. Does that make
0: sense? Oh, totally, yeah. Is there a certain type of crime that you prefer to write about or report on? So, for example, it could be something like murder, which is the extreme level. It could be something like fraud or mass disasters. Is there a particular area that you prefer, or is it just anything will sort of tickle your fancy? Yeah,
1: I think um, I did one recently called No Safe Place Murdered by Her Father. And This is the sister of um, the honour killing Um, victim Benaz Mahmoud. I don't know if you're aware of that case um, murdered by a a plot was orchestrated by her father and uncle and male cousins and they raped and killed her and put her in a suitcase and buried her in the garden in Birmingham So, this is her sister Bikel Mahmoud, who's now in witness protection Uh, she gave evidence against her father and uncle It it was such a brave thing to do and the, honestly, the bravery of that woman, she was absolutely amazing in terms of a brilliant interviewee and for what she's been through. So I think it is, you know, like I like the focus to be on the victims and those impacted by the crimes, you know, rather than, oh, that's right about this serial killer. So it was yeah. the same with the Peter Tobin. It was the, what struck me was the sort of affinity I had with them, them girls because they were around about my age, both out, you know, one was at a music festival hitching a ride you know like I thought yeah I might have got in a car at that age with someone like him so it's it's the impact I think it has on the families and him and their stories for me so and it's very much the case with Backel it was really heartbreaking but equally good to get her story out there you know her side her version.
0: What's it like if you come across an interviewee that's struggling to give up information it's not that they don't want to do the interview they're just not used to portraying their story how do you overcome that barrier
1: yeah so so you mean like you're asking them stuff and you only get one word answers or
0: yeah so it could be I suppose asking open questions is a method but even then if they're not really offering or elaborating on what you're asking
1: yeah I mean you, you can usually like sort of steer them in the right direction or like sometimes I might send them like an example of a chapter I've done from another book to say, you know, for this, with this interviewee, we had to do, you could see how we built this scene or the, the level of detail involved and what they've offered and, you know, like would it would be good if we could create something like that. Or or usually, uh, touch wood, I find that um, if it starts off a little stilted it as you get into the interviewing process, because it's new for them as well often, but as they get into it and they realise, you know, the more... Questions and answers, or you know, dialogue that they they start to sort of give this stuff naturally, like offer more detail, and 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 they remember more as well. That's what I've noticed as the interviews progress. You know, often like someone I'm working with now, she keeps sending me like WhatsApp messages saying, "Oh my god, I've just remembered this. (laughs) I'm going to send it to you. This memory." And she said, um, "She said you're right." as, As we're getting into this, it's all coming back to me. Some people see it as a Almost like a form of therapy. I know that was the case with Bikel. She she, she, she was upset when the interviews ended. Bless <laughs> um, her. She just really enjoyed talking. It was like sort of therapeutic for her.
0: It makes sense because I guess it is kind of, a th- especially if they've not really talked about it outside of the family. Yeah. It probably is quite therapeutic for them. With that in mind, then, do you think that you would maybe save some of your more pertinent questions, I suppose, for? maybe not the initial session, maybe use that first session to break down that barrier and then you can move on to something when they get a bit more chatter.
1: Yeah, definitely. And one sort of thing I did with Raquel, I mean, we'd have like three hour long interviews and on Zoom and a lot of it was during the, one of the lockdowns. Um, but we did, like I managed to get, she was brought up, obviously from from Kurdistan, moved, fled to Iran with her family and they, where she spent about eight years before coming over here as silence seekers. So she spent a lot, there was a lot of background about growing up in a rum and she was really interested in all about the cultures and horrendously strict, horrible father, monster. But she also has some fond memories. So we went on Google Street View and turned on on the big computer and turned it around and she was able to direct me down all these roads. So we got a real colourful, you know, I could see it as well as hear what you're saying about about the areas and we sort of, it's like a bit of a, trip down memory lane for her she she enjoyed that and um yeah so the little things like that that really does bring people out of their shells and but yeah you do like your question was the more pertinent questions yeah we did a lot of you know talking about the past and her growing up and but then when it came to the the stage where she talks about finding out that her sister's body's been found that was you know that was really heartbreaking and so but that was well into we I left that right till the end, you know, We obviously it's towards the end of the story anyway, but um but yeah, you don't you don't go straight in with you know yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: I would be a little bit uh tasteless, I would say. Yeah. yeah. Do you ever visit areas? You Mentioned Google Maps there, you might have a look and they might take you on a journey. Do you ever visit places that they're referring to to try and get a
1: real feel for the place? Yeah, um I'm trying to give you an example I think of. Um I do. I mean, especially if they're in London. Obviously, I'm based in London. I'll I'll go along. Even if it's like just somewhere, a museum or something like that that's in a scene, I might go there. Or if if, if there's an actual address where someone lived, or and it's you know doable to get there, I will do. Yeah, that's important to get a feel of the,
0: the place. Yeah, I would imagine that's probably gets the creative juices flowing a bit more than I don't know about yourself, but I'm a, I guess, a practical learner if that's the best way so if someone showed me something i'd find it hard to interpret and write about that but if i went somewhere yeah and did something for, i don't know how you are with that but that's how i would particularly be i think
1: certainly there's like been pubs i think it's the one the blind beggar in Whitechapel chapel for, for one book i did could be and i remember going in there just to get a feel for the place do
0: you get many chatty landlords in pubs
1: yeah, so um, <laughs> I'm sure I i can't even like really, that's me trying to remember now and that day I did that because we're going back to 2012, I think. It was for a yeah. book I was doing with Jimmy Tippett, South London, former gangster. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, well, you get chatting to people in there. Usually, uh, um, yeah, I usually end up talking to somebody.
0: What's their opinion when they think, oh, here we go, there's someone else writing about it? <laughs>
1: sometimes i don't tell people what i'm doing <laughs> you just <being laughs> yeah yeah i don't always tell people but um it's a strange reaction you get sometimes to go so i mean well often the most common reaction is that like, where's your name like mm. you know, if you wrote it where's your name so that you have to explain that concept especially to family aunt's uncles and stuff who bless them always buy and read my books and they say but where's your name?" <laughs> It's okay. You don't go into ghostwriting to have your name on the front.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say, yeah, you must go into it with a certain mentality to think.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm I'm sort of doing this behind the scenes. What's the step up or difference, I suppose, then, between your book that by the time this comes out, your book will have come out. So it's the real life murder clubs, Citizens Solving True Crime, February 1st, 2023, the release date, Adlib Publishers. What's the difference? I know you said you kind of Sometimes don't always like being in the spotlight as far as marketing and talking about the book. But going from being a ghostwriter and being able to let whoever the book is based on deal with that. What's that change like for yourself? How have you found it?
1: Um, it was terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> really terrifying, especially when I was writing it because you feel very exposed all of a sudden. You know, with ghostwriters, you are used to being behind the scenes and like. Oh, and then once you finish that project, you move on to something else and you can sort of, well, someone else is doing all the promotion, you can on with the next project. But, um, but this was, uh, very much like, oh my God, that's going to be my name on it. And what if it gets terrible reviews and all these things go through your mind? And, and you, and you think, oh, you know, I've really got to be on the ball with this one because I can't make any of you know, not that I make mistakes, but you, you are very conscious of how your writing comes across and, you know, because it is your name on that cover. See, it was a bit, bit terrifying, but at the same time, it's it was nice to do do something as, as as me, you know.
0: Yeah. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now back to the story. I think "exposed" is a good word to describe it. I think that's how I would imagine it feels. Yeah, like,
1: yeah. It's
0: like I don't know. All of a sudden, you just laid bare in front of everyone you yeah. <laughs> no, no longer anonymous kind of thing but what inspired the book though i know the cover and the kind of play on the book is tied in kind of with the richard osman is it the thursday or tuesday murder club the map be one of each
1: yeah the thursday murder club um yeah yeah so it was um uh, i can't take credit for the for the idea so john blake at adlib publishing came to me with the idea and asked if i'd like to do it so he wanted to do like so the real life murder club The novel about a group of pensioners who you know come together to solve a crime you know citizen sleuths so his idea was to let's look at the real life citizen like sleuths armchair detectives whatever many names (laughs) so yeah I thought that was a great idea and it just took up from there but um, it was it was harder to find people in the UK most of the cases are nearly all of them are American Mm this is quite a big thing in america and they get more access to databases and court records and you know than than over here so that's and you know the, one of the first um, hurdles was to find these interviewees and um, i thought that would be quite straightforward but it it took quite a while you know you're sending out numerous emails and waiting to hear back and then instead of one person's narrative like you have in a in a ghost written book you're dealing with like sort of multiple stories and sometimes multiple stories within one chapter as well and multiple interviewees so you're sort of jumping from from one to the next so you didn't have that continuity that you have with one author you know that that closeness you share throughout the process when you are ghostwriting for one person so it's a bit of a different approach this time.
0: How long did it take to research then if you're waiting to hear back from someone and then you're chasing up someone else
1: Oh gosh, I'm trying. I mean, I can't even remember how like yeah, you're, you're constantly researching, like you're talking to one person, then you're researching. The research was a big part of it because you, you know, it's there's lots of dates and court cases and victims and, you know, along with the processes of what people were doing, the, one of them was a creating artwork, Cole Copperman. And then like you, so you're, you're talking about what they're doing as the process of being a, a armchair detective, but also you've got to have all the details of the cases that they're investigating. So there is a lot of research. There's many hours, months spent <laughs> on this. There's
0: the thing about true crime, isn't it, is you can't really get the details wrong, and it's all details. Yeah. Whereas with, with someone's autobiography, they tell you a story, you might agree on some kind of embellishment, I suppose, in a little way. But, yeah, with true crime, if you get something wrong, people will pick it up like that.
1: Really difficult as well, because I... Sometimes you're relying on online information. Yeah. And one news article might be wrong. They might have an error. So you have to like double check and you know, you'll know yourself, you have to keep like double checking and then checking like official records. And so it's a lot of back and forth to make sure you've got the correct information. Yeah. And I'm terrified all the time that you're going to get something (laughs) wrong, you know?
0: Yeah. I remember I had on uh, John, I forget his name, a former guest, apologies. John something, and uh, he put a tweet on the other day, actually, and his book was based in Leeds, where I am. Mm-hmm. And instead of, it re- referred to York Road as the A64, but on one occasion, it was down as the A46. Oh, no. Just the wrong way around, and someone had felt the need to reach out to him, and I think it was several people, and he's like, I'm aware, I know what the A64 is. But well, yeah, it's, yeah, you-
1: it's done as well when you're tired. Like, a, lot, a lot of the time when you're writing these books, I mean, I, I think I was up all night, one night on this you know and um you're so tired you know you get yeah. two three in the morning and then go, oh just just another hour just another hour and then the concentration just goes you know it just it goes completely and then you know i've got to step away from this now you know and then you get some sleep and then you come back to it fresh so yeah it's, it's it's easily done you know like just a slip of concentration
0: how did you pick the stories in there were there some that you definitely wanted to focus on or was the one that you started with and just branched out
1: um, the, well, the Luca Magnotta one definitely because I watched the Netflix series. I won't say the title. Um <laughs>
0: You can say it. It's fine. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, um, yeah the, the don't don't fuck with cats.
0: <laughs> there you go.
1: I couldn't actually get hold of Diana Thompson or John Green, who are the main sleuths in, that were featured in that documentary. Despite several attempts, I couldn't get to them. But I did get to a few, a couple of other people, one of the other sleuths. Well, it's interesting what you say about um, people like difficult interviews. I actually went out to um, Croydon to meet one because I'm thinking, great, I've got a UK person. And when I got there, I met her in the cafe, and I should say this, but she couldn't, unfortunately, she couldn't remember anything. So, oh, God, it didn't really go anywhere. So, um, I, I couldn't use that. But I managed to speak to to another one person at Sleuth that was on on that investigation via messenger.
0: So were these the sleuths that were pissed off with the whole cat-killing thing?
1: Yeah, so it started, didn't it, with, um, I think it's back in 2010. Is it 2010? Yeah, December 2010, um, when this uh, one boy or two kittens video appeared mm-hmm. yeah. online, and uh, one of the sleuths, Deanna, She's animal lover. Most of them that started this um, investigation of animal lovers, you know, so horrified because well, when they first saw the video, it's these cute little kittens on a silver bedspread with a picture of a wolf. So they're thinking, oh, another you know fellow animal lover here, cute little kittens. We're going to get this cute cat video, and and then it suddenly cuts to a a vacuum uh, bag, you know, that you store clothes in, Mm -hmm. and the next thing. A figure appears in a hoodie. You just see the side of his face, and um, he's putting the kittens into the bag. And then the Hoover goes, and he suffocates them. So Ugh. one of them tries to escape. To... So they've seen this this video and absolutely horrified. And that's when they set out to to catch the kitten killer. Obviously, more more videos um, emerged after that as well.
0: Was there sleuthing directly linked to him being caught for the murder? Cause he murdered. Was it a Chinese man yeah. that he murdered who'd sort of either come across and was hiding, was he hiding his sexuality from his parents or something?
1: Uh, something like that. He was, he was a yeah Chinese student um, mm, in Montreal, yeah. uh, Jun-, Jun Lin. And he was seen on CCTV at Luca Magnotta's apartment in Montreal. But obviously that's that was later when they knew he was a suspect. But no, they, they helped identify Luca Magnotta. Right, um, but they they'd gone to, they'd taken information to Toronto police, and nothing ever got done about it. So I think they when it emerged that he was he was the suspect, obviously their their biggest fear all along, because he he posted two more horrendous cat videos: one where he fed kittens to a python, the other where he's Drowning one in a bath, like attached oh. to his mop head, it's just horrendous. So their biggest fear all along, these sleuths, was that he's going to kill a human next. That was, and that was what one of them said to me: "He's going to, he's going to kill a human." So that was their, their main concern all along. And of course, unfortunately, they turned out to be correct. Jesus, uh-huh. they say
0: it starts with animals. It always starts with animals, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. There was um, Mark Mendelssohn, who was a retired homicide detective you know solved dozens and dealt with dozens of murder cases over the years but he said when he's watched that video and his actual words were it blew me out of my chair uh, he said I've never of all the things I've seen he said I've I've interviewed people that have admitted killing someone chopping them up into 16 pieces I think it was eating them and all, all these things he said but he's never seen anything like that it's um the video of him killing Jun Lin but one interesting thing this Retired detective said to me, Mark Mendelssohn, was that he said what he found strange was when killers admit to murdering someone when they're sitting there being interviewed. He said that a few times, like one guy said, like Oh, I'm, I'm knackered. like This is one who cut someone into 16 pieces, or I can't remember the exact amount of it, was something like that. And he said, they're, they're complaining about the exertion of the job they've just done. Oh. I mean, it's just, yeah.
0: You can't make it up, can you?
1: Yeah, it's horrendous.
0: I think the most intriguing story from your book, which is probably the most notorious, is the Golden State Killer.
1: Because
0: mm-hmm. I know how he was caught really fascinates me regarding the genetic genealogy or something and running it through. I didn't know the story of the, the sleuthing that had gone on prior to that. Was a lady called Michelle?
1: Yeah, Michelle McManara.
0: Yeah, really sad story that, actually. What do you think... I'm not, I'm not going to spoil what happens if people don't know, but... Based on the outcome of that sleuthing, mm-hmm. when it actually came to arresting Joseph D'Angelo, technically they weren't linked, so one was without the other. Do you think that was still work worth doing, or was it years and decades of wasted time?
1: That's an interesting question. So you mean like the the work that Michelle and Paul did, as opposed mm-hmm. to police work? Well, I think Michelle actually when she she was the, the whole case consumed her. She had good connections with, with detectives and Paul Holes, the, the guy who cracked it eventually was, was one of them. And she suggested to him years ago during her investigations, like we need to do get his DNA profile and put it into to JedMatch the, the database. And so she did suggest it. So the idea was there, it was planted before. I think maybe in in terms of eliminating certain suspects yeah i I don't think any work they did was was wasted time not at all you know who knows if michelle had lived um i know paul haynes i he was her main investigator um researcher and when he found out he said he said the first thing he wanted to do when they found out d'angelo had been arrested was just to speak to her but unfortunately she was no longer with us um yeah But he certainly said that she shone a light on the case. You know, she brought it into, she felt it stagnated for so long. So she sort of, I think, brought it back into the spotlight.
0: Yeah. Didn't she coin the name Golden State Killer as well?
1: Yeah, she did. In an article she wrote, yeah, she she came up with that. She knew that the original Night Stalker and the East Area Rapist, two Mm -hmm. prime sprees sprees had to be the same person.
0: Crazy. It's a big, big story, even over here when he got arrested. Was it? 2020 he got arrested i think
1: yeah yeah because obviously they did the genetic genealogy Mm. he was living in citrus springs with his daughter and granddaughter
0: still in california just yeah living right there plain sight i watched the video on youtube of his statement if you can call it that barely strung a few words together really i just thought come on you can do more than that after everything you've done
1: that was what, um, actually, I'll, I'll just have a quick look as I'll tell you what Paul said about that at the end. It, that's something he picked up on. His actual words were, I've listened to your, all of your statements, each one of them, and I'm truly so, sorry for everyone I've hurt. He said, like, Paul reckons he, he had to keep replaying the clip numerous times trying to decipher the you know deeper meaning behind what D'Angelo said. So he said he watched it several times, and with each viewing, it resonated differently. And he questioned, he said, um it sounded like he'd apologised to those that he'd heard rather than hurt. So it, it says he wants to discern, but he, he does like have an issue with that. He thinks maybe he said hurt. Do you think
0: it's been misquoted or misheard.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, it was it was pathetic, wasn't it? Paul was saying to me he had when you see them. Poor women, given their victim. Did you see that the victim impact?
0: I uh, I, I couldn't bring myself to watching that.
1: Oh, yeah, it's, um, it's powerful stuff. But you know, again, going back to the victims being heard. Good on them for being brave enough to get up and definitely and to be able to face him as well. You know, um, but as Paul said, um, you notice he, he made no eye contact.
0: Must be so frustrating. That can you imagine forty odd years? and then you're finally face-to-face with him, and all you want him to do is to look at you and acknowledge what he's done, and he won't even give you that satisfaction.
1: Yeah, because he used to, he had a habit of, um, and Paul was saying, he noting that body language that it was sort of, it, it tied in with, D'Angelo would often, like, go into a corner, after raping one of his victims, he'd go into a corner and sob and cry, and he'd say, like, when he was when he was attacking these women, don't look at me, don't look at my face, he always wore a ski mask, and so... Paul reckons it's to do with that that um you know he didn't didn't want to be seen and as you say facing people with whose lives he'd destroyed basically.
0: This is a really 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 morbid question, but has anyone ever looked into? And I don't know how much people can question him, but because his attacks stopped abruptly, I think in 1986 you mentioned, and then mm. he just, as far as we know, did nothing again after that. Do we know what? the reason was for that? I know it sounds daft. It sounds like I wanted him to continue, which is the last thing I'm trying to put across. But was it because of advancements in he thought he'd get caught? Why do you think that might have been, that he just suddenly stopped?
1: I said, no, that is a mystery. That's probably the only thing I could think of, that advancements in DNA that might get caught.
0: The thing with his case as well, which interests me, not just for him, but his age range, is that especially in the UK we're seeing a lot and lot more people of that senior citizen, quote-unquote, age range getting put in prison because of historical crimes now coming to light with advances in technology. Is that something you've been more aware of doing your crime writing?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm trying to think of some examples.
0: Um... There was one recently in the news, I don't know his name, but it was an old guy, and most of these are historical sex crimes Mm -hmm. as opposed to murder. But then you've got like David Fuller, he was uh, arrested and then they found the other stuff with the dead bodies yeah yeah it's just i just wish the technology would have been around then
1: yeah yeah definitely
0: because they say all these serial killers US UK in the 70s and the 80s it's essentially because they were too difficult to catch too difficult yeah. to trace inexperienced officers had never seen it before
1: yeah definitely also like um obviously technology is one thing but i think also like I've noticed particularly in sort of sex abuse cases like people are coming forward, you know, victims are coming forward more now. Yeah,
0: yeah, definitely. I think the Jimmy Savile stuff's helped with that.
1: Mm-hmm, yeah.
0: time after that whole scandal. Gosh, yeah. That people are, are feeling more comfortable to come forward.
1: Yeah, and they're seeing justice being served in other cases, so yeah. it inspires them to come forward.
0: Absolutely. So with regards to the book then, I know it's uh, only just, come out or coming out as we speak i think comes out tomorrow actually as we speak it'll be out by the time this uh, gets released but there must be more stories that you think i could possibly put dependent on success in a sequel
1: yes we have been thinking about that (laughs) (laughs) particularly if like i've been trying to speak to more Did actually speak to somebody a couple of people from the dna doe Project, which again focuses on genetic genealogy um it's incredible work what they're doing and that's in the book matching unidentified bodies to missing people kind of thing searching the databases and and everything and there's a few uk volunteers for that project over here that i've spoken to so it'd be nice to get more of a you know see if it's on the rise in the uk get more of a uk spin on it that'd be good and of course if that technology could be used over here they did um one of them pointed out there was a case of i've got it here the case of the um Norfolk headless body are you aware of that one
0: don't think I've heard that one it's
1: a woman who's murdered in nineteen seventy four so historical case and a, a headless body was found in norfolk um and the head has never been found but the DNA doe volunteer I spoke to does believe that that could potentially be solved if the, we could use genetic genealogy over here so angles like that would be good to explore i think cases and as you say historical cases over here that have never been you know cold cases that if there was some of this work involved could be solved you know that you don't know
0: yeah the advances are amazing especially with that case the killers probably thought if i dispose of the head odds of me getting caught are drastically reduced which so far is clearly the case you can, you can seem to get DNA off anything these days. I know. Like bones and... Oh,
1: it's and all these, uh, obviously, these ancestry sites and people are, you know, sometimes people are finding out, I mean, what do you do if you, you do one of these tests and find out you're related to a serial killer? That must be...
0: It's weird in a way because these websites are kind of getting people to voluntarily give up their DNA without even having committed a crime. Mm-hmm. Just for human curiosity. Yeah. So there's the databases are getting constantly more and more full without you even committing a crime.
1: More for like a family tree perspective and, you know. Yeah. yeah. But, um, but there is that possibility that you're going to get a shock. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> Find out yeah. some dark secret about your family or, you know.
0: Yeah, that would be absolutely. It. Can you imagine that? Yeah. Oh, by the way, you were related to some killer from the 20s. <laughs> oh, that's why they never talk about great, great granddad John. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's why <laughs> but yeah so good luck with the book again for everyone listening it's real life the real life murder clubs Citizen solving true crimes it's got a similar cover to uh thursday murder club
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: is it the same publisher or no no is it no. not is there any legal issues with the cover
1: <laughs> not that i'm aware of <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's a very clever cover i must admit have... it
1: sells as well as the murder clubs at well um,
0: yeah you might get a few accidental sales in waterstones <laughs> perhaps <laughs> i'm only joking i'm sure it'll be great and i hope the uh, the marketing and the launch and the sales do great for you it's been oh, lovely speaking much. to you as and when if you do manage to do a sequel more than welcome to come back on we can chat about that
1: thank you
0: uh, for now everyone this has been Stuart and nicola and thanks for listening